now. Um, Tall Paul was just gone. Didn't <laughs> didn't care. Oh, my God. I mean, are you what what has it been like in in all of the different stuff that you've done, just like running into characters around Carbondale? I mean, have you just gotten to know or see or engage with everybody and every type of person that there is to be? Well, when you've been in Carbondale 45, 50 years, you've gone through some characters. Uh, <laughs> people have passed through Carbondale and those who have stuck around. So um, it's an interesting community where you, where you have uh, a lot of different types of people that uh, show up and pass through or stick around. Yeah. Uh, and I, I just, I, <laughs> you know, the, the, the faces change or maybe it's just the names that change the faces almost look the same like it's even the even the hairstyles come around like eventually you get back to the mullet or the big bushy beard or whatever it may be <laughs> thanks are cyclical that's for sure uh i i love it i'm a i'm a fan i'm a fan I mean, and it's and it's a recurring you know the the replenishing aspect of it i don't know everybody always seems to get their 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 particular space in any particular generation, uh, you know, at this point I'm, I'm like looking going, who's the next Joe C, right? Like who, who <laughs> fills these kind of shoes there? Uh, yeah, he was one of a kind. He was a special person. Did yeah. you, did you work with him like on, on projects and stuff at the, at the city, like for, for sunset concert, was that mostly like an SIU managed kind of thing? Yeah, it was handled differently, but, uh, you know, uh, Joe would handle, you know, sound, uh, for especially outside events uh, the city had, you know, at the uh, pavilion or wherever. Um, uh, and, um, but, you know, he was also uh, right next door to City Hall. So he, he <laughs> ran into Joe all the time. And, <laughs> and um, you know, he, he was always upbeat, always had something good to say and, yeah. and uh, enjoyed talking with him all the time. Yeah. It, was, it was always fun, just Joe playing music. I mean, was he always, was he always... Would he always run the big speakers outside? Was that like an age-old tradition at Soundcore? Or was that just something he did in the more recent years? I can't remember when he didn't do it. So, <laughs> like, <laughs> I only have a memory of Carbondale with Josie playing music out front of Soundcore yeah, on the strip. Yeah, it was. It was just kind of, you know, something that was there. It was kind of neat. Uh, Gives no. Carbondale character. Yeah, I I didn't know until I read uh, Gary uh, Gabula's. Um, piece in the southern i didn't realize joe had a phd he was i, I didn't either he was dr josie right right yes <laughs> and i th i don't know he i guess that was a better that was a better moniker for him than uh or i guess outlaw was a better moniker for him i guess he didn't think that dr outlaw josie wells was quite the fit <laughs> yeah he always uh he always called me the mayor uh even though i wasn't uh <laughs> and he knew that um, but I, I wish I had known he had his PhD and I'd have called him doctor. Uh, that's funny. That's funny. Then only one of you would have been right in that case. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, that's a, that's actually a good, that's a good transition point, uh, right there to get us into episode 38 of the WTF Carbondale podcast, where we talk to interesting people about their interesting lives and tie it all back together to this little old place we call home, Carbondale, Illinois. And for episode 38, as part of the ongoing series where we're talking to uh, candidates for the 2021 city council race, but people that are just as interesting as anybody else in this town, we've got Jeff Doherty, uh, who I am, I am really excited to talk to because probably not everybody likes the nerdy stuff. Um, uh, you know, all the, all the back end, all the bureaucratic, just activity, um, that people, that people like to make fun of, but ultimately keeps things going. Um, I, I, I look forward to nerding out about that at some point in time <laughs> in this podcast. Um, are you calling me nerd? No, no, no. Ner oh. Nerding out. And, and I, I guess I'll, I'll also say they're, you know, nerds got a positive connotation these days. I just heard it when they were uh, launching, uh, or they were dropping, um, perseverance on mars today uh, i remember listening to uh some of the high school kids that were doing science projects related to it and the one said what's up space nerds and i was right. like that's good yeah well they, nice. yeah they just landed on mars and and they came up with the uh vaccination for covid19 too so um <laughs> that's all good deal. stuff <laughs> 
Um, so yeah, I mean, just the the starter question, and this is really kind of the third interview that I've that I've done in the past week and a half, or not week and a half, but the past month or so, um, trying to get back into the groove of doing this stuff. But uh, how did you get to Carbondale? Like, what what brought you here? Like, how did Jeff Doherty become part of our community? Well, I came to Carbondale like. A lot of people. I, uh, SIU um, came in 1971 as a college freshman, um, and um, I've never left um, for various reasons. But uh, Carbondale has been uh, very good to me, and I, I fell in love with the community. Um, ended up getting two degrees from SIU and uh, started doing an internship with the city of Carbondale. Uh, and after the internship, they gave me a regular job. I, I worked as um, in the housing rehabilitation program, mm-hmm. um, rehabbing homes uh, in Carbondale, mostly at that time in Northeast Carbondale. And uh, uh, so that was uh, uh, my entry into city government, uh, even though I had a master's in public administration. That was my, <laughs> my entry. And then I, then I uh, uh, worked uh, about six, seven years on the uh, railroad relocation project. Okay. And, uh, you know, some of you have to have been around Carbondale a little bit uh, for a while to, to remember the railroad relocation project. But the idea was to bury the railroad tracks through town, or create an open cut and depress wow. the tracks down uh-huh. so that the um, streets would go directly across and, and eliminate those uh, rail highway conflicts. And um, it was a, a federal project. Mm-hmm. Um, Kenny Gray, uh, initially, you know, when he was congressman in 1974, got us got Carbondale included in this program uh, mm-hmm. at the federal level, and uh, uh, ended up, uh, you know, getting about 30 million dollars over the years for different things. We built what I still call the new Amtrak station, mm-hmm. and it's interesting, um, you know, being on the council right now, and and one of the projects we're working on is replacing that. So uh-huh. that that kind of dates me as well uh but we built the pleasant hill road overpass and the mill street underpass and uh, uh, pedestrian overpass at siu uh but uh then i moved into um more of the general government of the city i became the personnel officer or human resources uh director at the time um became the assistant city manager interim city manager, deputy city manager, and then finally they go, oh, let's just give him the city manager job. And, and that was in 1992 uh, that I was appointed city manager, and I uh, uh, served in that capacity for 16 years um, and uh, enjoyed uh, almost every minute of it. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, I really like city government because it's it's the local government. It's the one that really affects people's lives on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, from clearing snow off the streets like uh, it's done this this uh, week to uh, picking up the garbage to uh, public safety um, and everything in between. So it, it's, it really is uh, uh, a good feeling to, to, you know, try to make people's lives better and your community better as well. I love when people decry government, like, ah, government this and government that. But it's like, you like water for the most part in most places of this country does all right. Obviously, we have major shortcomings in in, in clusters around the country. Um, you know, it's like, do, do you like your trash picked up? Okay, cool. Do you, do you like being able to drive? And sure, there's a pothole or two, but at least there's a road. Like, <laughs> Right. Yeah, you know, it's... Um it is interesting. I, I mean, yeah, people complain, and that's human nature, and that's fine. Um, <laughs> and because, uh, you know, things can get done better, and maybe they have a good idea to do it better, and that's yeah. fine. Um, but uh, it is the basic services that uh, makes the town go, and that's, you know, um, when, when you think about local government, you start with those basic services, uh, police, fire, water, sewer, roads, um, and uh, and then you go out from there. What was it like? I mean, because having an MPA, uh, you know, many years ago seems like it, it is it is a different proposition than it is today. I mean, even in even in general, it used to be get your bachelor's and you're OK. Now it seems like you've got to get your master's to even be competitive in an arena like that. What what was it like 
you know, having a having a master's degree, were you working around people that had similar education levels to you, or did you have, uh, you know, a, a bank of knowledge that that was different and, and beyond what uh, you know maybe our city government had had kind of had experiences with? Well, that's um, uh, being in Carbondale, a no, university that's, community. That's a good point. There's a lot of educated people. <laughs> yeah, whoosh, right over top of my head. Right? <laughs> and so, yeah, and you have people who, you know, have a, uh, a degree, an advanced degree in something, and they're working in, you know, a completely different field of uh-huh. some sort. Um, so, um, uh, but, you know, your degrees are one thing, but the experience is the other. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, you work around people who, especially when I was starting out and working around older people who uh, had a lot of experience uh, and um, you learn from them. Uh, they may not have had the degree that you have, but, you know, they, they knew how to do things and, and you learn from them as well. So, you know, um, but in city management at that time, uh, it was pretty well accepted. You needed a, a, a master's degree if you're going to pursue being a city manager. Um, and uh, things had changed. You still had some old timers out there who, you know, uh, didn't have the master's degree, but um, they were retiring. And the new the new generation uh, that was pretty much a requirement. Okay. Now that's. And you know, again, another thing that people miss, right? They can they can complain and throw throw rocks all day long at what's going on. But it's like people didn't just go to school for this long and spend this much time in the field doing this work to not have some idea how the pieces of the puzzle go together. <laughs> well, and, and you know, in, in Carbondale, we have a council manager form of government. Mm-hmm. So you, you you have the public administrator who's hired to run the city on a day to day basis, but. But you have the council, city council, and the mayor making policy and uh, giving a lot of input in terms of you know how things are done, uh, and so you know they represent the citizenry and mm-hmm. and um, you know they they reflect a lot of what the community is thinking and they, that helps keep you in touch with the community itself because yeah. uh, it's it's kind of hard to. Uh, you know, interact with all facets of the community on a regular basis to yeah. keep up uh, when when you're you know trying to focus on doing one particular job, and that's where the the mayor and the council come in. Uh, you know, they lend that uh, uh, input uh, to you in terms of uh, you know how the community's feeling and what they want. Yeah, no, and it's the for. For that, it's almost like being that that liaison, right? Like it's when you're laser focused on, I gotta I gotta do the actual job itself. Sometimes, you're right, it is difficult to get that to get that just input in the in the right uh, in the right way. I mean, for for from a city manager perspective, I mean, is that is that kind of how you utilize the the city council and the and the mayor as kind of a tool for that communicative aspect to be able to hear exactly what folks were saying and and how they were saying it and it may not it may not be textbook you know what um you know what learned and earned um ideas kind of apply here but it's still ultimately you know you got to serve to some extent what folks are are asking for even if it may not be the right thing i'm thinking of particular stop signs or other things around town off top of my head (laughs) yeah i mean that's uh they represent the community and the citizens, uh, and you know that input's uh, um, very helpful. And um, and sometimes you get obviously, I mean, it's not always a you know five zero or seven zero you know view of things uh, mm-hmm. on the city council. Uh, you get different views and different opinions, and you try to you know mold those together. And were were we work. were we five? Uh, were, were we a five-person council as opposed to a seven-person council up until uh, a particular point in time? In 2003, uh, Was it? Okay. Uh, right. the uh, uh, city went to um, went from always the mayor, but went from four council persons to uh, six. Okay. Uh, and the idea there was, um, you know, over the years, going back many, many years, um, uh, Carbondale has been an, uh, council has been elected at large throughout the community, not representing any certain district or ward. Mm-hmm. 
And there had been uh, attempts over, I think, two particular attempts, two referendums. Mm-hmm. I think one in the 70s, another one uh, in the 80s, uh, to go to a, a ward system. Mm-hmm. Um, those were defeated. Um, I think primarily because being a, uh, a college town, yeah. um, uh, you know, and everything that goes into that, um, they were defeated, but there's still an idea. Uh, <clears throat> and things change. I mean, people right. on the council come and go. Mm-hmm. But at the, that particular time in the late 90s, early 2000s, uh, there were certain areas of town that weren't represented on the city council. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and um, so the idea was to get better representation, still stay at large, but mm-hmm. go to six council people. And it's very interesting that... Uh, uh, the first election after that happened, there were two people from that particular area that you know, didn't feel they were represented yeah. on the council. So, uh, like I said, it's cyclical and things change, um, but that's when it was done. Yeah. No, and it, and it uh, it's it, it's fun. I mean, just just to think of it that recent. So I, you know, dating myself, I would have been just getting off of, oh, so this is something that you could totally answer for me, Jeff. Oh, this is great. So uh, Carbondale Youth Conservation Corps or something like that, do you recall a program that had a similar name where it was like youth-focused? It was like CCC. Oh, my gosh. I can't for the life of me remember exactly what it was called. Um, I, I don't know the exact name of it. I don't know that we had a, a, a formal name for it. Okay. Uh, it was something that um, – uh, Mayor Brad Cole um, uh, implemented, uh, proposed, and, and the council adopted a program, a summertime program. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, it went for two, maybe three years. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the idea was to clean up the community. So mm-hmm. they'd go out in, in groups with uh, having a, a leader and, and go out and clean up properties, uh, what have you. Uh, and, um, it was a good program. It was, uh, very beneficial. It was very costly. I mean, it was, um, uh, and that's, I think why it was, uh, terminated, uh, about the time I left the city, um, mm-hmm. because of, uh, budget considerations. It was, um, uh, about $300,000 a year for that. Yeah. Like real, real pay in, you know, it's, it's interesting. Just the, just the handful of things that we've kind of discussed so far, right? Anything from, uh, you know your work initially getting in with the city and 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 working to redevelop housing to uh, talking about ward system referendums uh, to talking about you know even even this you know summer work program right that it's it's we're always kind of reinventing something that we've done before it feels like um, not that we have to jump too much into that but that, that's kind of the <laughs> like like there is something there is some sort of Something that's happened, and if you go ask Don Monty about it, he'll tell you <laughs> when it happened, where it happened, and who was involved, how much it probably cost, and whether or not there was a measurable outcome somewhere. <laughs> Don's memory is legendary. <laughs> He's got it all parked back on that acreage right in the middle of town. That's that's what it is. Somewhere back there are Don Monty's memories, and they are golden to this town. <laughs> Used to go to Don and say, Don, you know, what's the story on this? Well, yeah. One time we went to him, he goes, I don't know, I, I, I forget. And I'm going, what do you mean you forget? You don't forget anything. <laughs> <laughs> Tom, Tom Grant told me a story once about going to Don for, for something and that Don has a stack of papers on his desk from, you know, from the desk to his shoulder, darn near, thinks about it and just licks his index finger goes tick 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 shoo here you go right and well before anything was digitized and filed away and you could control f and keyword search there was just don's memory yeah yeah i mean that that's a a classic description obviously somewhat exaggerated but but not a whole lot we're, we're very, community is very fortunate to have Don Monty serve, uh, uh, you know, in his career working for the city and then later working as uh, on the city council and yeah. was acting mayor for a while. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, yeah. I am. Um, no, that was that was I, I remember 
going to Don about something with the crying baby in my arms and the whole shebang. And he was just able to kind of nod and figure it out and get me going the right direction. It was a, it was a good, it was a good experience. Um, now, and I, and I, gosh, I, I wish I could remember cause I, I think it was something having to do when, when Neil, uh, Dillard was, was mayor, uh, right around the, the end of his tenure, late two thousands. Um, the 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 program for for youth again I, I can't remember it off the top of my head but um, you know again lots of lots of things that have been out there mm-hmm. so the going going back a little bit further was there something that sparked your interest in government like as a kid that drew you this direction or did you just like stumble into it in college or how how do you get to the interest in in making a career out of government just always an interest in government. Mm-hmm. Um, from the political aspect of it to um, uh, the way things worked, um, just always, uh, I think people have strengths in different areas. Um, mm-hmm. You know, science and math, I did okay, but it just didn't click with me. Um, <laughs> but, you know, when you take classes, uh, you know, in government and social studies and, you know, politics, it, it, it just my interest was always there with that. Um, yeah. And uh, when I got to college, I, I, uh, I got a degree, undergraduate degree in administration of justice, but I got that degree because it allowed me to get a wide liberal arts degree mm-hmm, in, mm-hmm. in a lot of different um, areas, from business to political science, psychology, the whole thing. Yeah. And, uh, but it was the government classes that really uh, uh, you know, um, caught my interest. And of course, you know, that's, uh, yeah, I think there's some really legendary uh, poli-sci professors out there who, uh, you know, um, influenced me a lot from David Kinney, uh, John Baker, uh, uh, those type of people who, uh, you take their class, and to me, I just absorbed it, and um, they had a big influence. And then, you know, once I got into the MPA program, um, you know, it, it flourished from there as well. No, no, it's... People, and this is, I mean, I, I, it's so funny that you talk about kind of some of these named persons that were so influential for you. I did a similar thing in, in the podcast that I cut earlier uh, this week is, you know, it was just talked about like, okay, what what did I go to school for, right? Like I, I, I got my business chops out there in the real world, but like I went to school to kind of become more well-rounded person. Like I can name these people that are in their own respect, like, legendary people in in the communication world uh, you know specifically i talked about johnny gray and and uh, uh brian kelso crow and uh susan doughton uh, you know unfortunately the the two latter have have passed but each having so much influence in their own right in the in the world that they that they influenced and yeah i it just people miss how many of those people exist in carbondale <laughs> yeah yeah you know um the uh and it's very interesting i i uh went to siu i had these professors you know and they they were carbondale people they lived in carbondale yeah. and you know citizens here and um and then i later i got to know them in a completely different way mm-hmm. because my wife is a carbondale native and her uh-huh. family was here so um, they were friends with a, they had a big social group and they were friends with all these people. And I, and I got to know them on a social basis. It was mm-hmm. really, um, really kind of interesting. Now, did you, did you marry into the Vogler family? Is that? Uh, I, well, uh, my wife, uh, her maiden name is Vogler. Yes. Okay. Uh, Barbara Vogler. Like the Vogler Voglers or a uh, different set of Voglers. And you can, you can, you can plead the fifth if you need to. <laughs> no, 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 no. I think it's, uh, you know, it's a very much an important part of, uh, of me and, and, uh, you know, why I'm, uh, Stuck around Carbondale. Uh, <laughs> one of the reasons is uh, I married a local girl, yeah. <laughs> and um, uh, her uh, her father uh, Ed Vogler Jr. was uh, president of Vogler Ford. Oh, that's cool. And her grandfather Ed Vogler Sr. Uh, founded Vogler Ford in 1923. Oh wow! And um, so uh, they, they don't. Uh, the, it's still the Vogler. Ford, uh-huh. but the Vogler family hadn't had any interest since 
Barb's father uh, retired in the late 1980s, and there's okay. no interest there. So anybody who thinks, uh, and, and some people thought, well, you know, his family owns the business, and that's where the city always buys their cars. <laughs> not the case. Uh, there's no interest there. Uh, the Vogler name was very strong and the goodwill there, and they kept it when the buyers that did, uh, that uh, bought it from the family. Um, but, you know, some interesting things about, about the Vogler family, that obviously they've... Uh, uh, go back and, and some of the old Carbondale, uh, you know, growing up here and everything. But oh, I'm so sorry. Shame on me for not turning my phone off like it needed to be. Sorry, Jeff. That was impolite. That this is a this is the really exciting story that I really like wanted to get to and talk about was like what your institutional knowledge on the Vogler like Ford legacy was because I, I I have no knowledge of it. Well, <laughs> I, I think one of the more interesting things about the Vogler family, aside from Vogler Ford, and you know that's that's uh, everybody knows Vogler Ford, is um, that um, uh, my wife grew up in the Hunley House. Okay. Wow. Okay. Uh, the, uh, her grandfather um, bought uh, the Hunley House from the Hunley Estate following the murders in 1930. Whoa. And uh, so her father you know, uh, grew up there. Mm -hmm. And, um, then, uh, once her, uh, her parents, her father, uh, went to school out East and met her mother and they, they came back to, uh, help run the, uh, Vogler Ford. Um, but from the late forties, uh, on her father and mother lived in, in the Hunley house and mm -hmm. raised, you know, the five kids there. And uh, eventually sold it in 1971. But um, yeah, from 1930 to 1971, that's real. That was really the Vogler house, and huh. uh, where where the uh, Barb and her brothers and sisters grew up. Did did she ever have any like spooky stories from oh, the yes. house? Or oh yes, yeah, and and um, you know it was always funny there for a while uh, around Halloween. Uh, reporters from the Daily Egyptian would call up uh, Barb and her mother and come <laughs> over and sit down and they'd tell the stories again about everything, you know, and they'd write the news stories. But um, uh, there were things that, um, you know, happened that, uh, you know, sounds in the house and so on that any old house makes. But, you know, <laughs> it makes a good story whenever there's uh, supposedly haunted. Yes. <laughs> Oh man, I wish I could blame the uh, the cracking and the and the crinkling in my baseboard heaters on on ghosts and not <laughs> needing to do a little bit of repair around the house and bleed the lines. Right. <laughs> right. So that that's uh, yeah. I um, um, uh, met Barb and uh, she uh, she had been away to school and came back uh, in uh, 1977 to. Uh, uh, go to law school at SIU, mm -hmm. and uh, we met that summer and started dating. And um, uh, when she finished law school, we we got married. So that's cool. A lot of policy in your household. A lot of rules, I bet, between an MPA and a lawyer. <laughs> one's gonna put them in place, and one's gonna litigate them. <laughs> Imagine the the win lose ratio on that one's probably not in your favor, Jeff. No. <laughs> uh. That's good. That's good. Are the are the kids still around uh, here? Have they have they flown the flown the coop to greener pastures? Or our son uh, Jeffrey is uh, lives in St. Charles, Missouri. Has uh, uh, two children, um, married. Works for a, a company in in St. Louis, and um, he uh, uh, he started out at SIU and then finished a degree in St. Louis and. Ended up getting his master's at St. Louis University, so he's he's done nice. well. Nice. Um, our daughter Sarah, uh, she went to school in in Memphis at Rhodes College, and then um, eventually got her uh, MHA and MBA at St. Louis University. Um, her husband, uh, Ross Gray, who's a Carbondale native. Ross is married to your daughter. Yes. I love Ross. Ross is good people. <laughs> Anywho, yeah, yes. no, I bet Ross was a little bit older than me in school. I think he graduated oh five oh six something around that. Probably, yeah. yeah. I guess, yeah. I think longer. <laughs> was your, Maybe was your earlier. I'm not quite ages? sure. Which um, Sarah's oh eight. Okay. All yeah. right. Wow. Okay. Cool. She's uh, so she's one. All right. Gotcha. Yeah, and um, 
he uh, uh, he went to med school, and um, Sarah was doing her uh, studies in St. Louis, and he got his uh, residency in St. Louis, and they were up there for three or four years, and um, uh, he uh, came. They wanted to come back to Carbondale, mm-hmm. uh, raise their family, and they have been here for a little over a year now. He's a hospitalist at Heron Hospital. Nice. And Sarah just started a job with uh, uh, SIH. So and they have bummer. two little boys. So yeah. it's nice to have him here. Although it's <laughs> it's a real bummer with the COVID because, yeah. you know, we, we we don't get to hug the kids. Yeah. And, and especially them working in healthcare. I mean. Well, yeah, especially Ross because he handles COVID patients <sighs> at Heron Hospital. And uh, so, uh, you know, that, that's it's been a long year. And um but uh, next week we get our second shot. <laughs> so, you know, the, 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 uh, the time is nearing, so maybe we can give those kids a hug. Good. Good. Have, um, have, they, have they gotten a chance to get their vaccines as well since they're working in healthcare? Or are they still? Ross has he's had both uh, cool. shots, and I think Sarah has her first one tomorrow. Awesome. Ah, it's, it's just the, the start of some kind of relief. I, I – I did a podcast with uh, Dr. Jeff and uh, Ripperda. I always butcher names. I'm real bad with names, Jeff, as you could tell when I was starting to try and spell yours earlier on the graphic. And had so I go through on. life spelling my name, so I don't take it personal. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! Um, but you know, and he he made a post the other day on Facebook, and he was like, "Here's here's where it is with efficacy, and like you know, two weeks out to three months out, and here's where it's at, and all the studies." And he's like, "But that doesn't mean." Just get laxed with all this. Like, right. still be mindful. Like, would right. I go somewhere where everybody is vaccinated and feel comfortable? Absolutely. But does that mean that I'm just going to sit on my hands and pretend like everything's happy hunky-dory yet? Not quite. It's like, right. Yeah, I, I don't know that um, we will change our ways. Uh, Barb and I have been very, very careful. We uh, From March to August, I didn't go to any, into any stores. Mm-hmm. And I was one who went to the grocery store every day because yeah. I like to shop grocery shop and i like to cook yeah and um through august so we just didn't do that we ordered our food and had it delivered things got started getting a little loose you know mm-hmm. a little uh, things were looking pretty good so i started you know kind of venturing out into some stores and then the last wave uh you know from thanksgiving on mm-hmm. we've just been picking up our food and ordering it and uh, not going in the stores it's just you know it's not worth it, the ch- uh, chances that you know, the whole thing presents. I, I agree wholeheartedly. I wish I, I'm not going to go down this rabbit hole because then I'm going to have to cut parts of this podcast out or else I'm going to go home to a butt chewing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, OK, so this is really interesting. Like, so the food thing. Right. I love I love that concept, Jeff, that that you like to you like to shop for groceries. You like to put together, um, you know, uh you know, actually put together the components in the grocery store and then bring them home and put them together. So it's kind of a two-part exploration that I want to do here. One is Chef Jeff. The other is Jeff as a food critic for Carbondale and its restaurant scene as it has ebbed and flow over the years. Which direction do you want to go first? <laughs> Chef Jeff. Chef Jeff. <laughs> Give you time to think on the other folks. How I mean, have you have you just always been a cooker too, or did you get into cooking at some point in time in your life and you were like, oh, I really like this? I've just always cooked. Um we uh when I was uh in college, you know, we had a group of us that always lived together and everything. We were all pretty decent cooks. Mm-hmm. We took turns cooking. We ate pretty good. Uh, <laughs> and uh and I just always enjoyed cooking. Um, and uh, it, uh, for me, it's, uh, you know, especially when I was working, I'd like to come home and prepare a meal. It was stress management. Mm-hmm. It would let me unwind and kind of f- forget, you know, the trials and tribulations of the day and, uh-huh. and uh, you know, uh, relax. And so, uh, um, and then now that... Uh, Four years ago, when I retired, retired, um, <laughs> you know, I, I just enjoy going to the store and, you know, figuring out what we're going to eat that night and, you know, buy it and prepare it. 
your retirement plan wasn't to open up a food truck, Jeff? No. <laughs> my, my father, uh, who was a, a very smart man, uh, he uh, he was in the restaurant business early on and, it, you know, didn't do well, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, he gave me a bit of advice. He goes, never go into the restaurant business. And if you do, you manage the cash register. So uh, I took yeah. the first part part and never went in the restaurant business <laughs> but i, I enjoy I, I, cooking I think, for I think people that's another, sorry go ahead i enjoy cooking for people if it's just me i don't like to cook but if it's somebody else barb kids i like to cook <laughs> that's phenomenal i mean just the because there's there's another component to cooking that that people may not think of just in their own homes and that's the performative art of cooking right and for for me right everything Everything that I do in life, I, I tie around media, right? Whether it's whether it's you know something like this that's recorded on on video, or you know something that happens on a stage live in front of people, right? That's how I best um, hand myself over to other people. Um, but it seems like if what you enjoy doing is cooking for others, that that's part of how you hand yourself over to mm-hmm. other folks as as well. Is mm-hmm. that kind of a fair assessment? Yeah, yeah. My my daughter was um, uh, talking about something she had read recently, and and how people express their love mm-hmm. to others, and um, you know some are outwardly about it and hug and you know and just <laughs> you know others you know might be a gift giver uh, or others do things for others, and you you you, you express your feelings in different ways, and and. Um, uh, you know, we talked about it, and then me cooking for others is one way I like to express myself, my, my feelings toward them. Uh, that's wonderful. That's I, that's just a good, uh, and especially for, you know, the grandkids, and especially when the grandkids get back into it, right? I mean, just being able to put together a little Saturday morning set of pancakes or, you know, dicing up fruit or whatever it might, might be, or just, you know, putting together a nice, wholesome meal, I imagine is a good just a really good feeling. I make a mean omelet. <laughs> good to know. Very good to know. I make an awful omelet. I know this because when um, my wife and kids had COVID, but I had not yet contracted it from them, uh, I was put in the position where I had to cook for the family. And my eggs are not good, apparently, as I've been. Do you know where I learned how to make an omelet? No, but I would love to know. I was a grill cook at Charlie Pickles. Huh. And you talk about restaurants. Charlie Pickles was a restaurant um, that was uh, located on Walnut Street right across from uh, uh, City Hall. Uh, And uh, back in the 70s, so people have been around for a long time in Carbondale. Mm -hmm. We'll remember Charlie Pickles, and I was a grill cook there for a while. That's very interesting. Um, That that ties into a bigger uh, – to a conversation I had uh, talking with – with Peter Gregory, it's been probably, oh, a year and a half since we talked about this. But he was talking about how Steve kind of lucked into the right kind of restaurant getting into the pizza business in the 70s versus where everybody else was at in the burger business in the 70s. And reason being was beef was real cheap and uh you know electricity was a dime a dozen to run some of these new appliances and just a mix of things that made the burger business fit then but definitely doesn't make the burger business you know the the fit that it is you know now that it was then now pizza and burgers have completely flip-flopped for now <laughs> the pizza business is the piece is the business you want to be in between you know the the ability to you know, put it together as an assembly line to, uh, you know, especially during COVID, that it's about the most delivery stable mm-hmm. item that you can put together. Yep. Well, <laughs> did you have any other interesting college jobs before getting the 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 government uh, work well, assignments? Uh, I grew up in Olney, Illinois. Okay. And um, Olney. Uh, uh, nice little community, uh, and uh, uh, a lot of oil wells around Olney, mm-hmm. southeast Illinois. Um, and my dad spent his whole life in the oil business, uh, sold oil field equipment uh, for the most part of it. 
Uh, and uh, my, my first summer home from, um, from college, from SIU, I was thinking, uh, yeah, go home and pick up a little part-time job or something, take it easy, kind of be, you know, man about town. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I walked in the door. He says, well, I got you on a oil well uh, crew. Um, you know, you'll be working uh, evenings, 2.30 to 10.30, which shot any social life you would uh-huh. have. And um, I worked 64 straight days, <laughs> roughnecking uh, in the oil field, uh, you know, and I did that for three summers from college. Um, so that uh, uh, was a roughneck in the oil fields. Um, lost the tip of my finger. And that's very, that's, a, that's quite interesting. <laughs> what, okay, all right. Um, the loss of limb, is that something that, that – um, is, is that anything that you kind of try and conceal or is that something that just kind of, if somebody notices it, they notice it, if they don't, they don't, is, is there any sort of mind about, about that? You know, no, I, I don't, um, if people notice it, they don't say anything. Uh huh. Um, you know, I pointed out sometimes to people, if the discussion comes along about getting something smashed or losing <laughs> You're something, like, let me tell you. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I can relate to that. Um, <laughs> And, but, uh, no, it's, it's, uh, you know, uh, most people don't notice it. That was, that was probably before workman's comp laws were a little bit more. <laughs> well, I, I got workers comp and, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the insurance man, uh, came in and sat down and was very matter of fact and said, uh, you know, you're a 20 year old single male, which doesn't put a lot of value on you mm-hmm. in that and uh your your fingers are worth so much and that's worth the, the least <laughs> there's a there's there's a factor of 20 and you only lost half of it so that's 10 <laughs> 10 times 80 which is what i was worth for uh, my base for being a 20 year old single male uh-huh. i got 800 dollars. so that was this. And a really good lesson in how the insurance industry works. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh my gosh, Jeff, th- this is this is why I do this podcast because there are things about people in town that people would never know or think to look into or ask or whatever that is an in- like just a very interesting thing about a very interesting person. Right, and this is just one of those like tidbits of knowledge about you that that um, I just I really I really appreciate you sharing and being comfortable with, and 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 you know just here's here's something unique about Jeff, right? Yeah, well, it's who I am. So <laughs> <laughs> nine and a half fingers, we're we're all there, we're all there. Now, now I do have friends, you know, when when you know they. Uh, I kind of go like that. So says, don't give me four and a half. You know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. the best part is being a good sport about it too. Oh, you know what's yeah, it <laughs> happened. Was that uh, was that later on in the roughnecking or early on in the roughnecking? It was. Uh, I tell you when it was. It was the summer of 1974, and while I was off mending, um, I watched the Watergate hearings. Ooh, okay. And, and so that that was kind of interesting. I got, you know, had nothing else to do except lay on the couch, hold my hand up, and watch the Watergate hearings. So, did watching the Watergate hearings shape part of your interest in ethics and ethical stances in the operation of government? Yeah, I don't know if it shaped it. Um, you know, for me, uh, you know, you, you and for a lot of people that, um, you know, basically you realize that um, uh, not everybody in government's above board. Uh, and a lot of people knew that before. But, you know, for, <laughs> you know, somebody young, you know, kind of coming up, it, it was, uh, wow, um, they really do that. I kind of trusted them. Um, and um you know, which is, it's kind of interesting because, um, you know, people think government or local government and, yeah, the politician or whatever, you know, and they're just in it for this or that or, you know, they're, they're not, don't handle that correctly or whatever. But 
you know, in city management, in the profession of city management, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the International City Management Association, you have a code of ethics mm -hmm. uh, that you swear to, basically, uh, and, and operate under. And uh, if you want to be a member of good standing, you have to live by, you know, those tenets that they set forth. Um, being apolitical, not, you know, being partial to any one political party mm -hmm. or uh, outwardly or yeah. uh, or any, you know, person on the city council or, or whatever. You pretty much need to be apolitical. Um, in fact, they, they, you know, they, they, you know, city managers apolitical, but a lot of people say they're the most political people in town because they have to make those compromises yeah. and work with everybody. This, yep. this. But you know, the profession is very strong on ethics mm -hmm. uh, and very strong on good government and operating in the proper way. And, and that's pretty much how I was trained and how I've always operated. Um, and, um, you know, and continue to is my involvement on city council. That's great. That's great. The um, was when did when did the the Freedom of Information Act was it was that something that that was passed during your tenure did that did that come up I, I don't know for sure if that was that like mid 90s or am I am I yeah. way off base yeah it changed you know um there was there was always some some stuff there but the um uh, freedom of information act was in the 90s mm -hmm. uh when it came along and uh in terms of what we have now in Illinois and operate under uh and and there were some major changes that you you know you had to go through um in terms of uh, uh providing that information that's requested and having the procedures to do it and so on and having designated people in your in your organization who is that officer who handles those uh, those requests be it the city clerk or um, I think in the police department there's somebody there that handles them for the police department so the um, um, I, I just I, and I imagine that that was just a different world before you know primary amount of our communications were digital and again easier to query as opposed to having to have don's finger go tick 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 tick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh. but you know it's it's a good law uh, it, it's it it um um helps assure that there's you know good government there that yeah. that things are open transparent and that people can find out you know what they need to find out, uh, and, and if there's something, you know, rotten in Denmark, then you know uh, that kind of helps bring it up and bring it, it out there. It's it's wild that it really is just as easy as a Freedom of Information Act in some cases. You know, I, I think of right. So so just a, a key component of local journalism has always been the ability to investigate what's going on in your own backyard and give it the same scrutiny that, you know, major news outlets give national headlines. Um, and somebody that's, that's always done real well with this, even though I may disagree with him uh, politically, like I agree with him as a person and what he does is Jeff Egbert in um, Perry and, and Franklin County. He runs the, the Pinckneyville press and the Franklin County Gazette and a couple other papers, a radio station, just a mix of stuff. And like, he's always pushing like, Hey, you know, without without us, without what we're doing, we wouldn't have better government. And he's like, and the tool that we use to do that is the Freedom of Information Act, because that's how we look at things, analyze the documents that aren't the things that the general public's going to read through, and then synthesize it so we can put it out there for people to read and consume. Right. You know, I I'm um, you touch on something local press mm -hmm. and. Um, that's one of the things that concerns me is the disappearance mm -hmm. of the local press. I mean, it was always the local newspaper who showed up at the city council meetings, mm -hmm. sat there and reported on what was happening. Yeah. And um, with the, you know, the way newspapers are going, you, you don't have that anymore in a lot of communities. And that's how, you know, citizens kept up on what's, what was going on, as well as, you know, making sure the government was uh, above board. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I, I think as, as time goes along, it's, it's, it's going to be a lot easier for somebody who's not doing things properly in government to not get caught. <laughs> and <laughs> and, and uh, it's, it concerns me a lot yeah. because, 
you know, it is a, a balancing act there, not a balancing act. It's checks and balances. Yeah. Uh, for uh, for the for the media and you know, in places where we live, small town America, mm-hmm. it's the local media that helps do that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're you're absolutely right. And the the scary thing on the other side of this to me is is who fills that void, right? So so I I'm a lot of different things on the internet, but I'm also like set an ethical standard for myself of, you know, yeah, there's some performative stuff here. Yeah, there's some critical stuff here, but it's always underpinned by the truth, right? And and trying to to flesh out what is what is, you know, the the most honest uh, take on things that that there can be, um, you know, through whatever lens that there may be. Again, you know, critical uh, humor, uh, just sharing information, what what have you. But there are other places, right, that are in all of our neighboring towns where there may be people that are not ethical and starting to replace the role of the daily newspaper with a Facebook page or a Facebook group or a blog or whatever may have that is tilted too far one direction or not even focused on seeking out the facts to begin with. And then you've got not just a void of, uh, you know, accountability from, you know, the officials in place, but then the people that are supposed to be putting a check on that are no longer actively doing that or, or the place where people would go to see a check to put on uh, the balance would, would no longer have that. And it's, it's scary. I, it, I, I specifically, I talked to somebody who, was from a, a smaller town around here about a, about an hour's drive and they had probably about five or six years ago uh, a group of just local people kind of take over as the the local reporting source no newspaper no nothing going on so their Facebook groups or pages or whatever were the ones that took over local discourse and essentially pushed excuse me institutional bodies out of the way for their own political, purposes and the things that they wanted to pursue and that just sent the whole from you know the city management all the way to uh joe on the street flip that all upside down as to what was real what was not and what work needed to actually get done in the town uh mm-hmm. and that's a threat like you're saying yep. in, in every small town in america yep. yep you know it's very important for citizens to be informed mm-hmm. and and the local media you know um has played that role um, I, I think, uh, given, uh, you know, the internet and, and social media to a, you know, a certain extent that, that, uh, governments are starting to, uh, use, uh, those means to reach out and, and, you know, uh, communicate with mm-hmm. the citizens, which I think is good. Um, and, uh, but it's, it's, you know, uh, Detailing the the uh, discussion at the city council meeting on, you know, whether or not to to implement this new tax and who mm-hmm. voted for and who voted against and what their positions were, mm-hmm. you know, we're, we're not seeing that so much. Yeah, and and it's not necessarily right. There there is an importance for self reporting, right? My 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 key thoughts in in the digital space is about self reporting. If if we want for there to be visibility on 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 the actions that are occurring, um, you know whether it's in our personal lives and government and a business, what have you, that there has to be self reporting that occurs. But in a particular case like that, right, while the city can self report in a way of say publishing. Uh, the the video of a city council meeting uh, to publicly accessible channels on the website and uh, you know through a public access television uh, channel like we do now uh, you know they can't go out and synthesize in the way that a newspaper can where they can take the bites from this you know highlight you know two of seven people in a particular discussion and then elevate that conversation to the general public and say here's the facts that you really need to take away from this what could have been a two-hour discussion that most people aren't going to watch or care to participate in right right um (laughs) yeah and and i think um you know in terms of citizen access one of the things that really bothers me about this past year and given covid Mm -hmm. is is you know that public bodies or a lot of public bodies don't meet in public session i mean we meet public in public session per the law by Zoom or whatever <laughs> program we use. I'm not sure which, but it's Zoom-like. Yeah. And, uh, you know, from the confines of my home, 
and everyone else, you know, from mm -hmm. their homes. And we're not getting together. And it, and it is very hard for citizen participation. Mm -hmm. It's very hard for citizen participation. And therefore, you don't get hardly any citizen participation. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas, you know, when we met, you know, in City Hall and had the public meetings, there were always people there. You had your regular people who, who attended those meetings and, and gave their two cents worth on things. And, mm -hmm. and it was, you get that input and that, you know, how people feel about things. And, and it's, um, you know, that's missing right now. And that's not good for government, I don't think. So, you know, I, I'm looking forward to when we get back together and meet in person, but at the same time, I'm not in a big hurry to do that, you know, from a selfish point of view, <laughs> yeah, because, uh, you know, I want to be safe. Yeah. No, and, and I, I want I and I want others to be safe as well. Mm -hmm. It's just mm -hmm. not me. I'm getting my second shot next week. But there's a lot of other people out there who um, who aren't. No. And, and to rush into stuff. I mean, it's just just like in here, like we, we're not. We probably won't open these doors for another year. I yeah. just I just can't imagine a world in which we're open with 150 people in a room recirculating air and yada, yada, yada uh, in 2021. You'd be lucky to find 100 people, 150 people in Carbondale that would be willing to do that. Which is what I love about the people that we live with, Jeff, <laughs> because they are the type of people who don't necessarily want to get all packed into a room with each other and share disease right now. Right. I mean, <laughs> you know, it, it's very interesting. Well, you know, they're wide open over there. Yeah, you look at the paper, they also have 2,700 active cases right now. Yeah. We have 100 yeah. in Jackson County. Yep. That's the difference. Yep. And, and you know, I, I just really admire the people here who, who take this serious and, and care about others. Yeah. Not necessarily themselves, but care about others. Obviously, they want to protect themselves, but they take measures to protect others as well. Yeah. Yep. I, I just, I, I really am... You know, and, and having been having been through the system, having gotten it, uh, having been through the system, uh, you know, getting a chance to to get the shot, watching everybody else. I mean, you know, I'm 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 in my early 30s. I'm not I'm not 21 years old and like got to go party and whatever else. But like I see a lot of folks in, a, in a, a range of ages that are very social folks that are like, I'm still staying in place i'm still being mindful of being in crowds and doing whatever else because mm -hmm. they they are they really do care mm -hmm. they they really do care and then you know even even at this point as we balance reopening of stuff you know we've got we've got businesses for the most part that actually care we've got people that are actually going to these businesses for the most part that care that are that are doing all of the little things that make social interaction just a bit more manageable right now for those that that are that are comfortable with doing so yeah. um you know and then the folks that are still like you know what curbside and pickup keep them coming <laughs> and that's what we're sticking with <laughs> oh man well this is this is good, Jeff. I mean, we're 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 edging up right on an hour. Um, you, uh, what what? I mean, is there is there anything outstanding that you're like you feel like we didn't touch on that you think is such a core component of you as a person that you'd be remiss if we didn't explore it a little bit? No, it's hard to say. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I. Um, I think we've kind of touched on a lot of different things, you know, my, my, uh, uh my deficiency and my, <laughs> my, my, love, right, so here, here, my here. love of cooking and, and Did, were um, you, were you, um, when you did the economic development board stuff, were you pretty heavily involved with airport activity? Was that, was that anything you were ever engaged with? Yeah. After I, um, uh, left the city, I, Became the director of um, Jackson Growth Alliance, which uh -huh. is a countywide Jackson Countywide uh, economic development group, not for profit. Um, and uh, you know, the, the idea was to bring together the major entities of of the county: uh, mm -hmm. Carbondale, Murfreesboro, Jackson County government, uh, SIH, SIU, um, and the businesses mm -hmm. uh, together, along with the Southern Illinois Airport very big player in, in uh, our organization. And 
the roots of that organization go back to the 1990s mm-hmm. when uh, Mayor uh, Dillard of Carbondale and Mayor McDowell of Murfreesboro um, got together and said, you know, we ought to work together as uh, two communities to promote that airport, the mm-hmm. Southern Illinois Airport, because there's a lot of potential there. And that's where uh, it was originally called and legally still called the Jackson County Business Development Corporation uh-huh. uh, and um, later changed to the Jackson Growth Alliance, um, a little easier to say and remember, <laughs> JGA. Um, and uh, uh, a lot of the uh, effort continued to be uh, at the airport. So uh, uh, I worked very closely with Gary Schaefer, uh, and the, uh, who's the manager of the airport. Uh, and uh, coming up with, uh, first we... Uh, received grants to develop a, uh, prepare a development plan mm-hmm. for uh, the airport and uh, then begin implementing it. And and I think uh, right now you can go out there and look at some of the fruits uh, of those labors because, um, you know, the road has been relocated, which opened up additional land for development. There's mm-hmm. there's two new hangars being built out there. There's a, uh, the new terminal being built. Uh, the uh, marijuana grow facility, which we were able to attract to, the, to that uh, property, is expanding. Is probably going to double in size here soon because triple, triple in size, uh, <laughs> uh, which which is you know uh, uh, the magic of uh, marijuana, I guess, especially hey, the recreational marijuana. Pay, pays my bills right now, Jeff. Pays my bills. I'm I'm working out there. Oh, so. okay. Well, I, I wasn't aware of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I actually uh, just started as their uh, marketing person about four months or so oh, ago. Yeah. They're, you know, as they go through stages, they're they're tacking on and and you know building out the business. And I'm lucky. And I mean, I'm to have a job like that in Carbondale for a person like me that does the things that I do. Yeah. I, that's unreal. Yeah, it's yeah. unreal that it's right here in my own backyard. Yeah, I, I think Iso is a. a uh, good company. Yeah. Uh, we were we were lucky. Uh, well, in fact, it was so interesting going through that whole process mm-hmm. because they weren't the only company wanting to locate here. Really? Okay. There, there were there were four applications total uh, that proposed that site. Uh huh. Um, and uh, you know we were working with all of them um, because uh, one, it was one of the few sites in Carbondale that that uh, uh, fit. The uh, was you could able be able to put that there yep. because of zoning requirements and and you know distances from schools mm-hmm. and everything else and you know at the time we were uh, working to uh, on that development plan for the airport and you know had land out there how would it be used and hey this qualifies and mm-hmm. and um, so it, it worked out pretty well yeah no and it, and it's cool I mean we're talking at this point you know well over a hundred employees mm-hmm. right i mean it's it's a it's gonna be yeah uh, you know in its in its final or continually evolving form uh you know a a real contributor to uh economic activity here and what's what's really cool about it be, beyond that is you've got a lot of folks that are able to to come in direct from uh kind of a, a service industry or or come in uh you know outside of of a traditional educational framework and and jump right in and find their way up into uh you know a a valuable place within the company which is not always everything that you can say about every company these days a lot of folks just hire and do the job go along right but this is one of those places that for no no pun intended as if i couldn't right that that you know growth for everybody involved yeah yeah Um, you you know and that's that's an important you know uh part of the airport property out there, that, mm-hmm. that private sector business there, and, and there's opportunities for other private businesses to come in. And uh, when um, the hangar's being constructed mm-hmm. out there, uh, the tenants are already lined up to come in. They're, yeah. they're, they're, they're going to be working on jets that fly in and, and uh, uh, get maintenance and overalls there and um, utilizing our, the skilled labor that's out there being the uh, aviation program, but you know, I, I'm always amazed when Gary Schaefer gives uh, programs about you know the airport, mm-hmm. and uh, there's over 800 people in a day out there 
uh, on that field when you talk about the, the armory and, mm-hmm. and the growth center and, and the, the uh, tech building mm-hmm. and all the other private little private businesses that are going on out there. Uh, it's a real growth center for our area. Uh, and, um, uh, uh, you know, I hope uh, we continue to invest in that. Awesome. And that is exactly where we're going to jump off here um, because we've talked to an interesting person living their interesting life, investing themselves in this little community we call home. Uh, not just somebody who's managed the investment, but been the investment himself. Episode 38, uh, Jeff Doherty, uh, one of the nine folks currently in the mix for City Council 2021, uh, somebody who is more than uh, qualified for doing what he has done and talking about all the awesome things that he's talked about uh, on this podcast. Jeff, thanks so much for the time. Uh, And for all those out there, as I figure out how to get lined back up and slap on a tagline at the end of all these podcasts. Have a good one, whatever that one may be.